Well, hey, people. Happy New Year. Um, so before I start off up here, man, I have to, like, give glory to something. Um, it's actually not God. I've got to give glory to this mohawk up here in the front row. So um, did you guys see this, like, while you were worshiping, and you were like, oh, my gosh, what is that, right? So did you guys see this? I just got to make sure you guys see this up here. So, um, uh, yes, I don't know what you did with John Jennings, but bring him back please. Um, so, uh, yeah, like, can we just like give, not, not give you a hand, but give that a hand. Like that is amazing. I love that. So, um, yeah, I love that. That's really awesome. Um, so uh, I hope you guys had a great holiday season and, uh, my family and I, we went to, uh, all over the place. We drove from here to Houston, stayed a night in Houston, stayed a night in New Orleans, stayed a night in, um, Fort Walton Beach. That was a big waste. It was freezing. And then, um, and then uh, we went to uh, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, and then came back to Fort Worth. And we drove like 2,000 some odd miles um, when it was all said and done. So um, I, I like to be a little competitive. So uh, do, did anyone else drive further than that over the holidays? Um, not flying. Flying didn't count, but drive. Anyone, can, can anyone beat me in how far we drove over the holidays? No one. Wait, wait, where? Who's, who's raising their hand? Oh, how far did you guys drive? Missouri's not as far as I would, I don't think. I think I still beat you. I'll calculate it later. <laughs> um, but speaking of being competitive, uh, so no one texts me or call me today between the hours of 3.30 and 6.30 um, because the Redskins are playing the Packers. And, and as you know, my Redskins, um, playoff appearances by the Redskins are about as rare as a good Justin Bieber song. So, um, so make sure you, you don't call me or text me during those hours. I will be preoccupied. And, uh, so hopefully we'll see what happens with that. Um, so today we are starting a brand new series in the book of Romans. And, uh, we, are going to lay some groundwork this morning. We are not going to dive into a particular passage and unpack the passage. We're going to look at a couple that are toward the end of the book. But we are going to be talking about the book of Romans the next uh, several weeks. And we're only going from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8 because Romans 1 to 16 would take us about two years. So we're going to do Romans 1 to 8 between now and like about end of April. And uh, I want to give you some background of the city of Rome. Has anyone here ever been to Rome? Like the real Rome, not like Rome, Texas. Is there a Rome, Texas? Probably is. But anyone been to Rome? Raise your hand really high. All right. Maybe like about 10 or 12 of us have been to Rome. So Rome's a pretty amazing city. Um, I went there a few years back before we had kids. It was our pre-baby trip. We were like, we need to have a pre-baby trip. So we went to Rome. On It was actually part of another trip too. And uh, it was um, it was amazing. And What's amazing about Rome is you can drive through Rome, we're on a big bus, and it's really cool. You'll see like ancient ruins just all over the place. You see the old city wall, you'll see the old city wall, you'll, you'll drive through the old city wall like on a bus. You're like, that's, that's, that was there like a thousand years ago. And it's just an amazing place. And I've got a couple of pictures that we took of the uh, ones of the Colosseum. I took this picture, pretty good, uh, handy, you know, photo work, photo, photo work there, right? And uh, yeah, artsy. And um, 
So the, uh, go back to the Colosseum picture first. So the Colosseum, as you know, is one of the biggest sights to see in Rome. And um, it's amazing when you're standing there. Like, at first, you're just excited to see the Colosseum. And it just has this, like, oh, cool, the Col- let's go take a picture of it. But when you really walk in there, it has this really weird, eerie thing about it. Because you look at that, that floor, and there was a floor over those tunnels a long time ago. And you look at that floor, and you just know how many thousands of Christians shed their blood on that floor. And it's eerie. You, you, you kind of like, you're, you're excited at first, and all of a sudden you think, oh, man. And you feel kind of overwhelmed by what used to take place there. This is where gladiators would kill Christians. And you may not know the history behind this, but in 64 AD, the emperor Nero, he was suspected. People think that Nero started a fire in Rome so he could clear out some buildings, so he could build some temples to himself. But then he blamed the fire on the Christians. Then he used the fire that the Christians supposedly set as grounds for persecuting the Christians in Rome. And he would, he would actually use Christians to he'd put them on stakes and he would light them on fire and use them as torches to light up his gardens at night. He would let them be killed by animals, by gladiators in this very arena or an arena like this back in that day. And so we see... Uh, some of their history, uh, as you walk throughout the city of Rome, this place would hold over 45,000 people for gladiator events. And then the next picture is uh, what they call the Pantheon. I also took this photo. I have to impress with this artwork as well. But this is the Pantheon. And this particular Pantheon was built in 120 A.D. So this was not built at the time that Romans was written. But it was built in 120 A.D. And you're, you're amazed. This is a... Um, this is a temple that's really dedicated to all of their gods in Roman mythology. And uh, when you're there looking at these kinds of things, it's just astounding to think this place, this building I'm touching, is, was built in 120 A.D. I mean, where we live in Texas, we got the Alamo. And we're like impressed with the Alamo. Oh, that's, that's like a hundred and some odd years old or a couple hundred years old, whatever it is. And we think of buildings being, you know, um, ancient when they're 150. Well, this was built in 120, right, A.D. And uh, so it's amazing when you think about just the history that this place possesses. Um, writers back in that day, they wrote that Rome was known as an overcrowded, it was loud, it was a smelly city, it was a place that provided every virtue and vice known to mankind. So there are certain images that you have in your mind when I say party town, in the U.S., you think of what cities? Austin. Yeah, Austin's a party town for sure. Vegas. You think of New Orleans. There are certain cities that are known for party town. Well, Rome's known for party town. And even today, if you go to, if you go to Italy, um, people that are in Milan look down on Romans because they say Romans are lazy. Romans don't work. Milan, that's like work town. That's like, you know, they're hardcore. They're all about industry and all about um, getting stuff done. But Rome is considered the lazy town because it's the seat of the government. It's the seat of the party town. And that's how Rome is viewed. And this is kind of how it was even back then as well. Uh, I want to give you some background of the book of Romans. And then we're going to get into the impact this book has had in throughout history. So the background of the book, here it is. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul, yes, you got it right. Thank you. We are teaching these kids something. Um, So we forget 
many times the Bible comes with a context. We forget that books in the Bible come with a context. I know most of you, you open your Bible and you just read it, and you think that uh, Paul penned this book into some just cold vacuum of nothingness, right? But Paul's writing this book of Romans for a very particular purpose. And I want to show you this morning what that purpose was. Uh, do you know where Paul was when he wrote Romans? This is a harder question. He was in Corinth, so no one got it right. Fail. You guys fail. He was about to go. So he's on his, he's on his third missionary journey. He's on his third journey. He was about to go to Jerusalem. He's taking a three-month break in Corinth, which, by the way, he's in Corinth for three months. He just cranks out Romans like it's nothing. Doesn't that just make you angry? Like, really, I mean, three months, he's just like, I'm just gonna, I'll, write, I'll write Romans. That sounds good, right? Three months. And uh, he writes Romans while he's in Corinth. And then he's on his way to Jerusalem to take an offering from the Gentile churches that he's been around, taking those, that offering to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That's his plan. Now he's writing a book to the Romans, to the, to the church in Rome. And so what is the situation behind Romans? Um, that's the question we want to get, with, uh, get to today. Uh, so, so Paul wanted to use Rome. He saw Rome as a, as a potential base. Like Paul wanted to initially, he, he wanted to eventually go to Spain, all the way to Spain and share the gospel in Spain. But he saw Rome as like the next sending place. He wanted to get to Rome and build up the church in Rome and also raise money in Rome so he could eventually get to Spain and spread the gospel as far as he could throughout Europe. That was his goal and that was his plan. And what he's trying to um, so he's, he sees Rome as this sending place. And I mentioned to you guys a while back that I went to the, co- the country of uh, the city of Dubai, the country of the UAE, back in November on a mission trip. And the city of Dubai has become this sending place in the Middle East. I know most of us think of the Middle East as just, man, the whole place is just, you know, guys in trucks with guns. That's how you picture the whole Middle East. But that's not how it is. I mean, there's a place... There is, yeah, that's kind of like Texas too, guys in trucks with guns. Um, they have a gun rack though instead of guys yelling and screaming and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, so you've got, um, you've got these images in your mind of what these places look like and what they're like, but Dubai has become this sending place for the church in the Middle East. And this is what, saw, what Paul saw Rome and what he wanted to become as a sending place for the rest of Europe for the gospel. And... Um, so he saw it could become this place. So Paul had taken three missionary journeys up to this point, and now he had one mission. We see his one mission summarized in Romans 15, verse uh, 20 to 24. Look with me if you have your Bibles there, Romans 15, verse 20. We'll start there. And Paul writes this. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul is consumed with this passion and this desire to put Christ on display, to put the gospel on display for Rome and also for the rest of Europe. And this is his desire. Look at what Paul has already done. Paul has already gone on three really intense missionary journeys. You've read about Paul's travels, his struggles, his trials, and yet here he is, here he is wanting more. He's wanting to go further. Most of us would have done what Paul did and said, 
done one-tenth of what he had done, and we would say, okay, that's good. I've lived a good Christian life. But Paul wants more. Paul is, always has his eye on the next thing. Always has. He never gets tunnel vision. He always gets focused on the gospel needs to continue to progress throughout the rest of Europe. And so after all this, he feels compelled to do even more. And I just couldn't help but, but read that passage and see the passion that he has for the church and for the gospel. As you read those words, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That is what is driving this man. He's got, he's in Corinth, been ministering to the, to the Corinthians there in Corinth. He's got his eye on giving some money to people in Jerusalem, but he also has his eye on Rome, and then eventually Spain. And he's being driven by the Holy Spirit throughout Europe because he's driven by this one idea, and that is there are people there that don't know him yet. And I feel called to go and be one of the ones that takes the gospel, takes Jesus Christ as far as I possibly can in my feeble life. And this is what's driving him. He goes on to write, verse 22, he says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing, meaning the Romans, as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So as you see, Paul's desire is to go further with the gospel. And he says he wants to get on to Spain eventually. And he's, he says he's going to raise up money. He wants to raise up money there, there in Rome to eventually get to Spain. And so uh, Paul had heard, so think about this. Paul did not know the Christians there in Rome. Never met them before. He had just heard that there was a church in Rome. Imagine this for a moment. You're Paul. You've, you've been all over that part of the world, except you've not been to Rome yet. And you, you know about churches being planted. And all of a sudden you hear about there are Christians in Rome. There are Christians in Rome. There's a church in Rome. Like the most influential city in that part of the world at that time. And, and where the empire is, is the, the seat of their government is, is, is there in Rome. And there's a church there that you know nothing about. On the one hand, you'd be really, really encouraged thinking, man, this is working. This is amazing that God is doing all of this. But on the other hand, you might be frightened. You might be terrified. Wondering, okay, is the church there? Is it healthy? Is the church in Rome, what's, what's the church in Rome like? What are some of their issues? What is the personality of the church in Rome? And so Paul is wondering all of these things, and he begins to hear some reports about the church in Rome. And so he writes this book called Romans. And I want to cover now just why Paul wrote the book. So in 49 AD, there was an emperor, Claudius, who expelled Jewish Christians from Rome. So there were some Gentile Christians and some Jewish Christians in the city of Rome. And then Claudius expels out the Jewish Christians. won't cover that this morning, why he did that. He expels out the Jewish Christians from Rome. And then a few years later, Jewish Christians were allowed to trickle back into Rome. Some think that Nero, when Nero first came into power a few years later after Claudius, that he had some advisors that were kind of keeping him in check. And Nero hadn't become like crazy Nero yet. (laughs) And so Nero was allowing these Christians, these Jewish Christians, to filter back into 
um, into the city of Rome slowly. And then as a result of them coming back in, there was some conflict that arose between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians in Rome. What was that conflict? That conflict centered around the observation of the Old Testament law or the Mosaic law. So the Jewish Christians, some Jewish Christians thought, okay, if you're going to become a Christian, you also need to observe all the food laws, circumcision, all the things that we see as Jews as being the people of God, then you need to observe that as well if you're going to become a Christian and become part of us as the people of God. That's how they viewed their Christianity. The Gentile Christians wanted none of that. They saw themselves as, no, have you read the, you know, some of the letters? Like, we're, we are free in Christ. We don't see that we need to adopt these rituals that you have as Jewish people in order to be Christians. And so there was this conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So Jewish Christians thought everyone should observe their law. Gentile Christians looked down on Jews for believing that, for their legalism. And so Paul writes Romans to both groups of people to humble them both, to humble both sets of people. And so you can see how this conflict just became this cancer in the church in Rome. And many believe that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians weren't even meeting together. They were meeting completely separately because of this conflict that was happening among the church in Rome. So I want you to see, this is, the, this is the conflict Paul is writing this letter into. So Romans is not written into this just cold, sterile vacuum of nothingness. This is written into, from a person, Paul, written to the church in Rome that has some major, major issues going on. And Paul knows, if I don't get this church unified, the chances are slim that the church will continue and be effective. And so this is why Paul writes the book of Romans. I want to talk to you now about just how this book has been so impacting throughout history. It is, as you saw in that little uh, video earlier, that it has impacted many, many, many people. We, we see the, the, the entire Bible is impacting, obviously, but the book of Romans especially has been a hugely impactful book throughout church history, and hopefully it will be the same as we study it together. So most of us probably think that the book of Romans was is written to help the really, really mature Christians grow. Like when you think of the book of Romans, I think most of us think of this is like the, one of the hardest books to study, one of the hardest books to understand because it's just so thick with just ideas and concepts that we're unfamiliar with. And we tend to think of it as this graduate level Christianity written for the really mature Christians to help them go to the next level in their faith, right? But the book of Romans was not written just for that purpose. And the effect of Romans has been um, pretty amazing throughout history. So we have um, certain perceptions of, when you think of old guys, like we'll talk about uh, St. Saint, Saint Augustine. Some call him Augustine. Some call him St. Augustine. I'm not sure how you prefer to pronounce that, but I'll, I'll call him uh, St. Augustine for the sake of this morning. And I've got a picture of, 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 uh, of St. Augustine here. I love this picture because I'm not sure what he's doing with his hand there, but um, flashing like medieval gang signs or something. I'm not sure what that is, uh, but I thought I'd use this photo just to make fun of it. <laughs> so there we go. And um, this is this is Saint Augustine, and he was born in Algeria, North Africa. In his youth, 
He is known as a little bit of a partier. He liked to party. He liked the ladies. He was a slave to his sexual passions in his youth. His mother, Monica, she prayed intensely for him. He's one of those kids that your mama prays for. She's like, I just hope my baby just comes back to Jesus, right? That's how she was praying for her son. And so eventually his education takes him all the way to North Italy, to Milan. And while he's in Italy, he hears this guy named Ambrose preach. This Bishop Ambrose preached there in Milan. So now he has lived a life. He has um, had, had a sexually promiscuous life. He has partied. He has done all the things that he can do in life to fulfill the fleshly desires. And now he's 32 years old, and now he's hitting a midlife crisis, or whatever they call that back then. And it was summer 386 AD was the year. And one day he just walks out into his garden to be alone. And I guess he had been reading through some of this, um, the book of Romans and in some of those scrolls. And it was here in his garden one day that God began to break him. And God began to just move in his life and move into his heart. And he says this quote in his book, The Confessions. He says, The tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. So he's in a lot of agony. He's in this this weird place, this place of just faith crisis. Am I going to follow Christ? Am I not going to follow Christ? And he's in this, this very pivotal part of his life. At this point in the story, the story goes that he hears out in the, the, the field somewhere while he's in this moment of just crying and shedding tears um, in his turmoil. He hears this voice, and it's the voice of a child. And this child just calls out and says the phrase, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he takes this as a sign from God, and so he goes back to where he is living or where he is studying and he picks up the scroll, one of the manuscripts of Romans, and begins to read it. And he just picks up and starts reading the first thing he saw. You know, how, you know some of you guys, like, you'll be having a tough time, and you're like, I'm going to play Bible roulette. I'm just going to find something. Whatever I see, I'm just going to read it. And this is what Augustine did. And he flips open to, of all places, Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Look at this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you think that was a God thing? You think that was a God thing, right? God just shows up. He opens to this passage. And this is what it says. And so after reading this passage, he then says this in his confessions. He says, I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of the sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And so he read God's word. And he was just grabbed by it. He was grabbed by it. He was just transfixed by what God was saying to him through Romans 13. For, for Augustine, he had what we call a breakthrough. He had that moment where he just 
Everything his mom had been praying for him, everything his mom had taught him when he was a kid, everything that he had tried out as a 32-year-old up to that point of his life, all the, the partying, all the sex, everything he had tried at that point in his life, he realized that it eventually led to a dead end. And, and that reality hit him in a real and transparent way. And he began to see the truth of the gospel. It was no longer just this head knowledge of, yeah, yeah, I know what that's about. It had sunk into his soul and affected him. And we call that a breakthrough. The gospel broke through into his heart. You know, discussing this with my wife this past week, my wife, uh, she said, you know, she said, Dave, you know that the book of Romans, you guys know, some of you guys know my wife's story. She um, was raised in a Christian home, but she uh, walked away from Christ around what, probably sophomore year, I think. And, uh, did the whole party scene, the whole deal, and, and really kind of rejected Christ and rejected the whole thing until maybe around the age of 20 was when God began to get a hold of her. And she describes God was working because he, for some reason, had her open to the book of Romans while she's going through all of this. And she says that she was so convicted. Like, she would be partying, but she would, like, read the book of Romans and be like, oh, I'm convicted and she would hide the Bible like under her bed to stay away from God's conviction. And so she said, just like Augustine, you know, that, that this was a pivotal book for God bringing her out of some of the stuff she was involved in. And God set her free from that. And so this book changes lives. And so it's not just St. Augustine that this life, this book changes. The next guy I want you to hear about is a guy named Martin Luther. You may, know, you may know who he is, right? I think you know who he is. And he's always wearing this funny hat. I'm not sure why that's about, but he's wearing a funny hat. And now his past was the opposite of St. Augustine. So St. Augustine liked to party. Luther liked to pray. So he was a, the opposite kind of person. He was not like Augustine at all. He was the complete opposite. He was the guy who was, who was committed to be a monk like, you guys know what being a monk means, right? Like, you don't get married. You don't get married. You're committed to a life of celibacy. And he was, he was committed to be a monk. And he had been a monk for, the year was 1515. And he was brought up to believe in a God that he fears and a God of judgment and a God of wrath. And so he spent 10 years being a monk, and he was very disciplined. In fact, he once wrote this statement. He said, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. So try to use that word in your, your conversations this week somewhere. I'm not sure how you could fit that in, but try. <laughs> um, but he was a guy that just was trying to work his way and trying to follow rules and trying to do the right thing. And he admits that he was not happy. He was not joyful. In fact, he uses the words that he hated God. He says he hated God. So they're the kinds of people in our world today that say they hate God, and so they then disbelieve in him, which is weird because you don't believe in someone that you hate. But he was someone who, he believed God exists. In fact, he kind of wished he didn't exist. Because then he might be, have joy, might have freedom and happiness, because he saw God as this overpowering, wrathful, angry being that he wanted to get away from. He was angry at God. 
And he saw God as more of a, as a terrifying judge as opposed to a merciful Savior. And so Romans 1, 16 and 17 changed his mind on this. Look at this passage. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that passage. We're not going to cover all that today, but I want you to focus on one phrase, and it's called the righteousness of God. At first, Luther thought the righteousness of God meant, yeah, God's angry about sin. God's righteous. He's holy. God's angry about sin. But then when he read this passage, and it just hit him differently, he realized that's not what the righteousness of God is all about. Of course, God is holy. But he realized that the righteousness of God was about justifying us by faith. And God applying his righteousness to us. Justification means that you and I are declared righteous. So we put our faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. Then you and I are seen as righteous. Even though we still struggle with sin, we are seen by God as righteous. We're declared righteous. Righteous, we are justified. It's a court term, a law term. God's righteousness is applied to us. And for the first time in his life, Luther saw the righteousness of God no longer as God's wrathful, angry response towards sin only. He saw it as, but wait, God gives me justification in his son, Jesus Christ. And it was a game changer for him. And many of you know the history. He says, In one of his writings, he says, after this realization, he wrote this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. And this realization is what started the Protestant Reformation. I mean, you and I are here because of this realization in this man, Martin Luther. Fast forward 200 years, a couple hundred years, a guy named John Wesley. I'll be brief about John Wesley, but similar background to Luther, rule base, rule follower, legalism, trying to earn favor with God. And one day he hears someone reading aloud what Luther wrote about Romans. And this is what John Wesley said about what Luther said about Romans. He says about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust, Christ, trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And so I want you to see the impact this book has had over history, throughout our history. And I want you to, here's my hope for us as we study the book of Romans. I want to give you a couple things. You've heard about Augustine. Augustine liked to party. You've heard about Luther, that Luther liked to pray. He's a rule follower. And God used the book of Romans to set both men free. 
God used the book of Romans to set Augustine, Augustine from uh, free from sin, being a slave to sin. He was living for himself, living for his flesh. And God used this deeply thick, rich, amazing book to set him free from the law of sin and death and enslavement to sin. And then God also takes the book of Romans, someone who's a rule follower, a legalistic person like Luther, and sets Luther free from hating God. Sets him free from his joyless existence. And he reinvigorates him with his understanding of who Jesus is and who we are as sinners separated from God because of our sin. And so here's my hope for us as we go through this book the next few weeks, is that if you're not yet a believer, if you're just checking out church, checking out the Christian faith, you would not call yourself a believer, then my hope for you is that this book, this study, would that you'd have the response of Augustine, that, that you'd realize that the things that you're pursuing right now are dead ends. They don't lead to anything but just more of the same. And you would see the life that Jesus Christ has, the real true freedom he has for you. If you're not a believer, my, that's my hope for you as we, as we study the book of Romans. If you're someone that you would call yourself a believer, but you lack joy, like you go through the motions, like you're a rule follower, you're a bit legalistic, you're a bit of a, you're a joyless person, you don't have joy in your faith, you see it as what you're supposed to do. So often, Christians see the faith, Christian faith, boil down to two things. Just believe and behave. Believe and behave. That's what we're supposed to do, right? But there's no real vitality and, and joy and no real life. And if you're a Christian and you're honest, then you would admit that we struggle with that. And so the hope is that this book would bring you to the response of Luther, someone who realized the joy that he, that he truly had in this relationship with Jesus Christ. And so for these guys that we've described to you this morning, we call this a breakthrough. We call this a where the gospel just penetrates beyond just knowledge, and you begin to experience true freedom and love for Christ. Whenever I talk to people, about baptism, I talk to people about, um, if I'm interviewing someone to be a leader on our high school team, I always love to ask their testimony. I always say, can you tell me your story of how you came to faith in Christ? That's my favorite part of the interview with them, because I get to hear someone's story and hear what God did in their life. And every time I hear those stories, there's always a point where someone says, this is when my faith became my own, or this is when I got it. And that's a breakthrough. This is what we're describing. And so my hope and my prayer for this entire series is that those kinds of breakthroughs would be happening all over this group, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian. My goal is to have Romans help us answer this one question. It's this question. Go to my next slide. Have I broken through into the freedom and release the gospel brings me, both in terms of my future and in my life right now? This is the question I want this, this, this series to have us wrestle with and, and, and grapple with. Secondly, I also want this 
series to bring unity among us. I'm not sure how unified we are right now. I just don't, I don't know. I think we could be more unified. And, and Paul's writing this, showing the Roman church that if you're going to be an effective church, you've got to be a unified church. You can't be a, an effective church if you're disunified. And so if we're going to reach our schools and our city, we've got to be a unified church and a unified group. And so I'm praying and hoping for those breakthroughs to bring about that kind of unity in our group as we progress through this series. I'm going to go ahead and close there, and you guys can uh, wrap up with some discussion at your tables. Go ahead and discuss at your tables.